Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. I love hearing from different veterinarians, different technicians, assistants, all people involved in veterinary medicine and just hearing different experiences of how we handle dermatologic cases. So I was so excited to have Dr. Stephen Kochis on the podcast for this episode. He is the chief medical officer at Oregon Humane Society, where I have personally had my little pit boxer mix adopted from. And they are a wonderful facility with amazing people who truly love and care about animals. I love having Stephen on just to talk about some of the challenges that arise in shelter medicine, but just it's awesome to hear the successes and really how advanced our medicine is and putting these pets on the right track. And he talks about some of the differences and diseases we see, like he gets to see a lot more parasites and dermatophytes than I do. Um, but it's just a really, really wonderful, fun conversation all about shelter medicine. And I hope you enjoy it. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of the Derm Vet Podcast. I am very excited to have someone local to me in Portland, Oregon here who actually like, I feel honored because you wanted to come on the podcast. Usually I feel like I have to like bribe people to get on it, but you were very excited to come on it. So that was very lovely. Um, and that is Dr. Stephen Kochis, who is the chief medical officer at the um, Oregon Humane Society here in Portland, Oregon. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. And I think this is very unique because, you know, th- we have lots of people and, we, and I have dermatologists and other specialists and general practitioners who come on and we'll talk a lot about allergies and management of otitis, things like that. But you have a very interesting perspective because we are going to talk about shelter medicine. And if I have learned anything from the times I have had friends in shelter medicine, or I've kind of discussed cases with people in shelter medicine, Um, you guys have a really interesting perspective of how you have to handle things. And we have talked about this. There are some diseases where you are actually going to be better treating it than I am because you have so much experience with it. And what comes to mind is ding, 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 like cat ringworm. You're like going to be way more the expert at it than I am. Ringworm central, especially uh, when you get to around this time of year when kitten season is happening. Um, And we're taking, you know, a lot of other shelters aren't as well resourced or as well um, equipped uh, to take some, especially infectious diseases um, like ringworm. And uh, so it could potentially be a cause for euthanasia in a smaller, less resourced shelter. And so we take them here and we actually have a ringworm ward um, and we have a backup ringworm ward. Oh my gosh. Say that really fast. Ringworm <laughs> ward. Um, and I, one of my colleagues in Salem, she actually calls it ring ringlandia. Oh. Um, their <laughs> ringworm ward is called ringlandia, which I love. Oh, I, <laughs> I love that too. And we're definitely going to jump in and talk about kind of like, you know, since you are a really good expert at this, um, you know, management of that and we, I, lots of different things as far as environmental decam- contamination, treatment. Um, I do real quick before we jump into our questions, though, 
I remember recently when you uh, very graciously attended a uh, um, lecture I did, I really think it was probably just for the free food because it's at a nice steakhouse. But you told me the story of the what you guys did when you actually had your ringworm ward. That is very hard to say. Ringworm ward clear. And what was that? We actually, when we cleared it, for, yeah. we had no patients in there. Yeah. We had a party. Party. <laughs> yes. Like, that's, that's amazing. Well, because like a year previous, we were full. Like our ward was full. Like our um, our spillover ward, if you will, was full. Oh, man. Um, and staff, you know, we had some staffing issues. And so we ended up, it's not ideal, but we ended up adopting out um, ringworm positive cats to willing adopters. Like we were forth- forthcoming about, hey, this is what what we've got to deal with. And we sent them with a month of medications and instructions, giving them a little bit of time before they could get in to see their regular vet. And we had a whole, you know, handout about zoonosis and what they were going to be doing and what they were in for and risk to, you know, their other pets. And we were very careful. We had a list of questions um, of things that were potentially would not allow them to adopt the cat. Like if they had little kids, if they had somebody on chemotherapy in the home, um, if they had older people, older parents living with them, like, so we tried to minimize the risk of putting a known ringworm positive into a home, but we, that's where we got, we had, yeah. to, we had to adopt them out. Well, and that's the hard part, right? Like, like we were talking about before we hopped on the call, there's so many different limitations that you guys have in, you know, shelter medicine that are just, I mean, it's like when I see a client and they have financial constraints, like you have gold standards, but then there's just sometimes real life and what we have to deal with. And and that's just the way it is. I do want to hear a little bit about your journey as a veterinarian, because I know that you haven't always been in shelter medicine. So can you, do you mind telling everyone just kind of your journey as a veterinarian? I know you have worn different hats in kind of how you've ended up in shelter medicine and what you've enjoyed about it. Uh, yeah, I've had a very uh, convoluted journey. Uh, I started out, well, we go back to veterinary school. I think I wanted to be a small animal theriogenologist. Oh my gosh. That, that la- yeah, that lasted a hot minute. Um, <laughs> by the time I got out and I was an internship, I kind of got hooked on uh, emergency medicine. So I did an internship and then I kind of stayed in emergency critical care for, gosh, about uh, three, five, five or six years after I graduated. Um, and then kind of made the jump to general practice for a bit of time. Cause I was kind of getting a little burnt out on the, you know, working every weekend, working, yeah. you know, switching from overnights to swing shifts to days. Um, and then I got, uh, recruited to go work for Pfizer animal health at the time, which then became Zoetis. Um, and I spent about seven years working for Zoetis and in industry. And, I, you know, I know, you know, this, you do some stuff for Zoetis there. It's, it was a great company. Like, um, so many amazing, amazing opportunities. Um, the, my Rolodex, if you will, uh, and my connections just like expanded greatly. Um, and then, you know, that was a lot of travel though, right? Like, so 80% of the time I was hopping on a plane, sometimes visiting three cities in one week. Um, and I got an opportunity to be a, a medical director for a large specialty hospital here in Portland, so I did that. And then I was a regional medical director for the same company. Uh, and then uh, shelter medicine came a knocking. Um, 
I will say that I took a six month sabbatical and worked in a nursery, a garden nursery. Oh, that's um, really cool. Yeah, which was. I need your uh, help. I'm like uh, a black thumb. I'm terrible. It was, <laughs> I can help you. I'd be happy. I love spending other people's money on plants. <laughs> um, it was wonderful. It gave me some clarity. You know, the hardest news I had to deliver to anybody was that we were out of red geraniums. I mean, it was like, it. You know, it was such a great sort of break before I took started this job. Um, and so, yeah, I, I landed in shelter medicine partly because I've had a long sort of relationship with the Oregon Humane Society, um, even throughout my other roles. Um, and then I was on the board of directors for, for the Humane Society for about four years before I became a staff member. So I've always had a, a love for this organization and an appreciation for everything that we do here. Yeah, that's awesome. That is such a wonderful journey. And I think it's important because it just shows that you, and I'm a big believer in this, even though like I went straight into dermatology, what I've done in dermatology has changed as far as, you know, doing podcasts and all of that. And, um, I'm a huge believer in that we can change what we do because different stages of life may, like you said, travel is great for what, seven years. It's a long time. Yep. And then all of a sudden it was like, they, maybe that's not, not the right fit for me anymore. And so it's great to have, I feel like wear those different hats and just, when new grads come out, they're so concerned. Like I have to know what I want to do. It's like, yeah. just do what you want to do right now. Yep. And you can figure it out and you can change and families change our lives change, different things we need to do change. And so I think it's great that you've been able to have, you know, a very tumultuous, like zigzag road in veterinary medicine. Yeah. And I mean, each thing sort of like, for whatever reason, even though sometimes it seemed very different, you know, each job seemed very different than the one before. It just kind of made sense at the time. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to explain. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Well, you so you talked to, so, and as a person who has a dog from the Oregon Humane Society, um, it's an amazing, uh, organization. It really is like it, the facility's great. The people working there are great. So it really is. Um, I mean, I, you know, got her in 2020 when we lost a dog. So it was even under really difficult circumstances, right? We couldn't just go in and look, we had to make an appointment we had to do a lot of stuff over the phone and it was still awesome. Like how amazing the people were and you, how much they truly cared there. So, um, I love hearing that. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. She's my dog's crazy. So I was like <laughs> that fixed, <laughs> but we, can, we do, we do have behavior and training. Um, okay. we can help. We have a behavior hotline. Yeah. Um, well, be careful what you wish for. Cause she's, <laughs> she's crazy, but I'm hoping as she gets, you know, she's two now. So hopefully that will, that will pan out a little bit. Um, what are some of the challenges you feel like in overall, we're going to talk about things more specifically, but what are some challenges you, you face in shelter medicine? Um, you know, I think there's a, there's a few different things. I think there's a, a stigma tied to a shelter that things are done, you know, less effectively, less efficiently or cheaply. Um, and that it's just not true. I, you know, I, I say to people, like we're practicing, it's not necessarily just shelter medicine. We're practicing medicine in a shelter. Um, and I'm really that. actually, I'm really actually proud of the things that we can do here. You know, and the fact that they're, they really trust me in this role to raise the standard of care. You know, I mean, we have a great reputation and, you know, my argument whenever there's any pushback about something is like, well, we need to live up to that reputation, which means like we can't just treat itchy skin with pred or temeral pee. Like we should, especially we have long-term residents here. Like there's a dog um, going home, hopefully this weekend. So it's uh, first an uh, actual interested owner. This dog has chronic skin 
disease. Uh, she came in like a bald, you know, elephant skinned mess. And we've got her to the point where like she's got hair and, you know, now we're just kind of dealing with like maintenance, but it, obviously it's a lot for an owner to take on. Um, and we'll probably have a celebration if she gets adopted. We usually celebrate any of our long-term residents going into a home. Um, but, you know, like we were able to treat her with Apoquil and Cytopoint. And, you know, we had a little rough spot where we weren't sure, like, are we on the right track? Is this even allergies? And so we, you know, we did skin biopsies. Um, and we're able to do that here because we have, you know, we have great donors and I have a really highly qualified medical team that they come from all walks of life. Like they come from shelter, they come from private practice. So it's like a really nice balance of, um, of different, you know, uh, experiences and expertise. Um, the other challenge is like, things are really shifting now in shelter medicine in that, you know, it used to just be like highly movable puppies and kittens and young dogs. Um, and so it's like we solved a problem here in Oregon and then we started we started a second chance program. So we bring dogs from other areas like Central Valley for a long time was uh, a, a resource for us to bring in dogs, mostly dogs. Cats usually were we've got that pretty, pretty well panned plenty, out. Plenty of cats. Yeah, plenty of cats, <laughs> especially seasonally. Yeah. <laughs> um, but now, like during the pandemic, like even that dried up and we were reaching now to Oklahoma, New Mexico, Hawaii, like, um, and so then there becomes a limit on how they get here, right? Like it's, it's really cost prohibitive um, to fly them, but we have sort of distances and regulations on how long we can put them in a car and transport them from one place to the other. Um, and so the dogs, uh, mostly dogs that are, you know, sort of left um, are ones that have behavioral problems, medical problems. And I will be honest with you, one of the top things that they have are, are skin treat, skin problems. Um, fortunately, most of them, it's about just getting them on parasite control and cleaning up, you know, like their infection and their husbandry. Um, but we, we see a lot of kind of chronic ongoing um, when they have, you know, have had either haven't had the right home that could keep up with it, or they, you know, have been bounced around from multiple shelters and so never had anything really consistently. Um, and so we have a lot of behavior cases and we have a lot of chronic skin problems. Um, so we've gotten really good at derm in, in yeah, the shelter. That's and awesome. like you said earlier, we, you know, we still see scabies and yeah. demodex and, you know, all the things that, have kind of been resolved now with like the newer class of parasiticides. Yeah. Um, we do work on one of the Indian reservations here in Oregon, uh, warm Springs. Um, and so like we got our first, I don't know, we had three dogs with scabies. Everybody was like, there's scabies, there's scabies. You can see it. Um, Cause you know, when was the last time I mean, you probably still see it, but not often. I mean, like, maybe once a year maybe I could go probably go a year without seeing it or I like, maybe I suspect it, but I'm not right. sure, but I've maybe seen Demodex and scabies once a year. Wow. Yeah. I'm jealous we, actually. It, it, it <laughs> was pretty cool. That. The one puppy that had scabies. I mean, there was like almost every field had a mite, right? Like wow. normally you only find like one mite. Yeah. The whole time you're looking. Yeah. Um, so it was really cool. Yeah. That is really <laughs> cool. And I, and I think honestly, like a, just really goes to show, and I say this to general practitioners too. I'm like, 
you can do great dermatology in general practice. You can do great dermatology and shelter medicine because you do get a lot of opportunity to work those up, right? It's visual, but like you said, there's limitations because most people, when they are thinking about adopting an animal, their first inclination is not to take one that has a chronic disease, right? It's just not, you know, emotionally what they're set up for. So I think it's great. I mean, I'm super jealous. You see scabies a lot, but besides that, I digress. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, it's, um, it's one of the things I love is getting to see all these things. Um, and you know, for a lot of pets, um, you know, where their only option to, to do something, whether it be surgical, medical, um, and so our vets have seen and done a lot, you know, like all of my vets are really good surgeons and not just like spay neuter, but foreign bodies, pyometra, cystotomies. I mean, we, they get experience doing all that stuff because they have to, right. They yeah. have to be able to fix these animals up in order to, you know, get them well enough to be adopted. Um, so they do a ton of surgery here. That's awesome. Well, if we talk about, and you've alluded to this quite a bit, um, the more common dermatology disease you see, let's say dogs, cats. So you've mentioned parasites, um, which I'm a big believer pretty much, especially where we live in most areas of the country, every dog and cat basically should be on a good isoxazoline if able to parasiticide. When I'm asked like, what's the one thing you wish veterinarians would do before they send them to you? Everyone thinks it's going to be a food trial. And I say, Nope, I'm okay. Handling the diet trial, just have them on a good parasiticide, you know, it's hard to have them wait two months to see us to find out it's fleas or flea allergy or scabies or, you know, take your pick. Um, so if we say dogs, cats, so it sounds like allergies, are you guys doing things like diet trials? Like what is kind of, what are you able to do in those situations that we talk about focusing on dogs, most common things you see. So it sounds like parasites and allergies and what's that look like for you? Yep. Parasites and allergies. And, um, we, it's, it's a little bit challenging. Like the shelter, as you can imagine, is not the best environment to try and conduct a food trial. When you sure. think about the number of different staff that might have to interact with the patient and volunteers. And, you know, obviously, especially if they have any sort of behavior issues and, you know, that can range from like really, really mild to like really, really extreme where we have pets that are, you know, staff only um, to walk and only like a limited number of staff that can handle walking the patient. Um, and same for cats. Like we have, um, cats in behavior modification programs as well. Usually it's just those that are like shut down or, um, you know, really timid. It's a little harder to work with the super aggressive ones. Um, but it's, it's hard to do a food trial. So thankfully we can put them in foster care. And so we have a pool of foster homes where we know their, their, and their experience with said disease process, um, whether it be like a post-op fracture repair or, you know, like a skin case. Um, and so we'll do a food trial usually in foster care. Um, cause otherwise everything here is very treat motivated. And so, yeah. um, and it gets a little dicey to know, like, are we really being successful with a food yeah. trial? Um, probably not. Um, everything obviously gets on intake. Everything gets treated with, um, a, an isoxazoline, um, Yay. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yay. Um, yeah, that's, uh, a, something that's been going on for a while. And recently we switched to all cats on intake, getting revolution. Nice. Um, it was a different product before, um, and it was not as successful. Um, yeah. So everybody gets parasite medications and then they, we have a system where if they're here longer than a month, 
um, then like it, it's an automatic treatment for them 30 days later to get repeat. Um, yeah, and then everything else, um, you know, we have a, a big arsenal of things. We have all the things probably that you do. That's great. Uh, you know, other than immunotherapy. Um, we have Apoquil. Uh, we have, obviously, we have Termal P and Pred. We have Cytopoint. Um, that's a new, like, that one was a harder one to get the team comfortable with, like, keeping. We were just kind of special ordering it for a bit. Um, but once they started to see the benefits and the the compliance component of it, mm-hmm. um, they've been pretty excited about it. Um, and compliance in that, you know, so if we have an animal that's on multiple different medications and then, you know, medicated baths, like, like that they need, yeah, it's hard on staff, you know, like we have at any given time, we might have a hundred cats and 80 dogs in our care and that they all have to get walked, fed, cleaned, and then medicated. And if they're on multiple medications twice a day, it's hard. Yep. So we try to do everything as much as possible to be a once a day medication um, or, you know, injectable if we can, because it cuts down on staff time. Um, well, so it's we probably use- also beneficial for the patients, right? Like if, if they're amenable to an injection, Yep. But you talk about being in a different environment. And if you do have some that are oral resistant to medications, cause they're already on X amount, like nice to take that away. If you're able to, we've had a few, um, a few patients where like you find the pill. Oh yeah. Like, and you find a little pile of pills. We had this one dog. It was, the, <laughs> it was, it was the cutest thing. This dog was like very, very fastidious and tidy, right? Like, um, would not urinate or defecate in her kennel. Um, you know, like the, very particular about everything. Um, and we have these little raised beds. So they, you know, they're up off the ground and then, you know, like we put blankets and stuff like that on top. She hid the pills under the raised bed, like (laughs) spit them out, spit them out and buried them under. So it was like, there was like a week's worth of pills, like (laughs) under the bed. (laughs) And everyone was like, I swear, I swear she took the pill. I swear she swallowed the pill. Um, yeah. So whenever we can, we try to use injectable. Dogs are amazing. They mm-hmm. just pet cats and dogs. They're just really smart and amazing. Well, that's really awesome to hear all the advancements you guys can do as far as management. So let's, you know, elephant in the room. Let's talk about dermatophytes and cats. Cause I know you're, yep. you are a good expert on that. So can you walk me through, um, you know, kind of some of your treatments? I know we've previously talked about, I believe terbinafine something, that you use often, which is a very good treatment for it. Kind of walk me through like the treatment, what you guys are looking for as far as like rotating, decontamination, things of that nature. Yeah. So on, you know, this is, there's a, I wouldn't say controversy around, you know, how to screen for it and, or um, I think we're all on board with the same way to treat it across the shelters, but I think we all have a slightly different uh, opinion on, what to do at intake. Like, do you screen, do you woods lamp every single cat? Right. Or do you only look for it if there's lesions? Um, some shelters do, you know, any, any kitten will get screened on intake. Um, we tend to only look if there's lesions or if we're taking, if we have an intake from either a, a place where we know ring, ringworm runs rampant say that fast. Um, or if we know the cat's been exposed, you know, in the home, then we'll screen for it. Um, but otherwise we, we just look if there's lesions. 
Um, and so then they go into isolation. Um, we don't let volunteers or students even, because we have OSU students here. Um, we don't let anyone else handle them. It's just staff only. They get put on terbinafine daily, and then they get twice a week uh, medicated baths. Um, and we can usually clear them in less than four weeks. Um, there have been a couple studies now that have looked at, you know, do you clear them after two consecutive negative DTM cultures, or do you, can you clear them after one? Yep. Um, we are in the one camp. Um, our shelter medicine re- resident, Lena Datar, I think did the first, took the first pass at looking at the effectiveness of clearing after one. And then uh, Karen Moriello, am I saying yep. her last name right? Yeah. Um, like published. Dramatified queen. Yep. Published yep. Uh, another study um, saying that, yeah, actually you clear, you're clearing a really high percentage of, of them after one culture. So we clear them after one culture. Uh, and um, I got to say, we haven't really had, we haven't had the experience where the, the patient gets adopted and, you know, we usually hear about it. If there's a problem after adoption. We usually hear about it. Yeah. Um, where the cat, you know, still has lesions or still has ringworm or everybody in the house now has it or anything like that. Um, anytime we find it where like we didn't catch it on intake or something like that, we, you know, deep clean, check everybody around. Um, we don't necessarily isolate all the cats that might've been around, you know, the, we do the picture frame sort of exposure model for things. Um, but yeah, I, we have, again, a dedicated staff that, uh, we try to rotate people because, you know, the same person to bathe 12 cats twice yeah. a week. Uh, I was like, when you said medicated baths for all of them, you know, not really yeah. knowing them, I was like, wow, that's impressive. We rotate them. So there's only, it only ends up being like a few baths a day. And we rotate the people who do it because it's not a fun project to bathe cats. Um, and what do you bathe them with? Lime sulfur. Okay. That's what I yeah. figured. Yep. Um, unfortunately, they are usually mostly kittens. So they're, they tend to be more cooperative for their bathing um, than like a crabby old calico or something like that. <laughs> and then, yeah, that, oh, go ahead. No, that that's, that's it. I think that's it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you are right there. You know, I know Dr. Moriello and there has been lots of talk about, um, you know, one DTM culture as far as like, is it really overkill? I mean, people used to say two to three, really, if you go yeah. way back. So is it really overkill? And I've kind of gone somewhere in between where kind of depends on how quickly I treat them. A lot of the times when I'm seeing dermatophytosis, it's like, you know, sometimes younger cats, but actually it's the opposite. It's a lot of older cats because they're immunocompromised. Yeah. So then I kind of waver depending on the case and how long it takes to clear up and how long it takes us to get to that negative. You know, if they're instantly negative in a month, then, you know, maybe I have a little more confidence versus one I really had to fight for because they're so immunocompromised. So I think that's totally reasonable. Are you, so what are you, like, what are you doing if you're, for your ringworm cases? Are you having the owner do medicated baths? Are you just treating? Good question. Orally? Yeah. Um, I, it depends on the cat. So because a lot of ours are not young kittens having it mm-hmm. and it is older, maybe sore, immunocompromised, because I think most of the time general practitioners actually see 
young cats with dermatophytosis more than we do because right. it, you think about it, right? Young cat just adopted or, you know, or not clearly from you guys because you cleared it, but just say adopted from someone or came from some situation, they came off the street, whatever, and they have it like that comes to mind. But you have a cat who all of a sudden develops some crusting when they're 12, like sometimes that's not what comes to mind. Um, and so if I'll ask the owner, essentially, like, do you think you could bathe? Um, I haven't honestly done a ton of lime sulfur. Um, it's hard to get and stinky and, you know, mm-hmm. owners are not as amenable to doing it. I'm not opposed to it. I think it's great. It's safe. So it's nice if they'll do it, but either we'll, um, just treat them orally or maybe even use some of the mousses that have like myconazole in it. If they can't bathe or bathe with something that has like myconazole in it. So that probably, we probably don't do it as often as you just because we don't have the dedicated people who will do it. Yep. And that just is like, again, goes back to the cool ways that we all practice differently depending on the situation. Um, you talked you talked already a lot about like management of allergies, which I think is great. And I'm loving hearing that you guys uh, have access to so many things and that you guys are very advanced and up to date in your treatment for them. And I think that's great because when you talk about, oh, we have an allergic dog who say comes in they come to your shelter, say they're three. Um, mine is allergic, but she was seven months when I got her. So we didn't know she was allergic until like eight to nine months. So you guys got to skate by. She also, I don't think was there very long. She came through second chance. And I think she like barely was there because it was right in the midst of everyone adopting. But I was like, well, didn't you pick a great owner for you? She was like allergy tested at one diet trial at eight months. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) So she's doing well, pretty good. It was the perfect match other it than was. the behavior part, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, she's a pit boxer mix. She's just crazy. But you know, that's a, um, you just made me think of something actually, yeah. you know, really important, which is our, like our goal is um, our, like our bottom line foundational goal is save as many lives as possible. And to that end, decreasing length of stay. Right. So we want our length of our average length of stay to be really low because the shorter time, the shorter the time here, the more animals potentially we can save through the shelter program. But the other part of it is like, this is not, I mean, as awesome as this place is and, you know, clean and, you know, fancy, if you will, compared to a lot of shelters, yeah, like it's not a great environment for a pet. Like despite all the things that we do to try to make it as good as possible, like shelter is not a great place, especially if you're sick. Yeah. Um, or, you know, or you're stressed. Um, and so we try to minimize the amount of time that they're here. And if we have pets that are going to be here a long time, provided they're not contagious or infectious, um, we put them in foster, you know, so that they can have as much of a normalcy in life as possible without having to live in a kennel. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so, so getting any, whatever we can do to move them through quicker, that's why we are really aggressive with ringworm is because we want to be able to adopt them out, you know, sooner than late rather than later and clear them as soon as possible. Yeah. And I think that's great. You're absolutely right. I mean, even the, the most well-trained dog in the world doesn't want to sit, you know, in a shelter environment, like forever, like right. it's a great transitional thing to do. What your guys work is so important and you know, saying as a person who has two dogs that I've, I've always adopted out of shelter medicine, like the work is so important, but yeah, you, you, it's like me handling an allergic case. I'm like, I love you. And I want to see you more often, but I also know you are happy to spread out rechecks with me. You are happy. You know, if we do have something curable, like we'd love to see you in different circumstances, but I know you don't necessarily want to be here every three to four weeks, the rest of this pet's life. So let's make strives to make that happen. Right. 
And so you kind of um, talked about management of allergies and how advanced you guys are. So as we're talking about adopting pets out and, you know, a lot of them are going to have long-term issues and let's just focus on the more common ones. So say allergic, Mm -hmm. um, how do you prepare owners for that? Because you guys can do things like treat them well. They're under really good care of veterinarians like yourself and the people you have on staff. They're, they're with people who are educated to look for these things and deal with things like otitis and pyoderma. What goes into kind of preparing owners saying, you know, I come in not a dermatologist who understands this, but as an owner, who's going to take a three-year-old golden, you guys have just had there for a few weeks, but we obviously know it's had otitis and paritis. Like what do you try to do to prepare owners for like ongoing costs, treating their infection, things like that? Um, it's not, I, I, this is an area where I think even, even the best of like the staff and training and education and conversations and everything, sometimes it still doesn't sink in what, lifelong, um, allergy or dermatology, you know, dermatological problems could mean for this pet owner and the pet. Um, but we have a number of different ways that we deal with it. We do, we call them pet resource or owner, owner pet resources. So anything that we identify while the pet is with us, we put like an indemnity essentially, um, into the, their file. So the pet owner sees that even before they, um, sign up to meet the pet or sign up for, uh, you know, potentially an adoption appointment. So they can see all the things that we've identified both behaviorally as well as medically. Um, depending on the severity of their their issue, then they will get a, a consult with either, if it's like a level one or level two sort of issue, um, they'll get a consult with one of our veterinary technicians. And if it's like a real bad, uh, real serious case, or like, for example, this dog that I was telling you about that hopefully goes home on Sunday, um, like they'll probably speak to the veterinarian um, before adoption. So like we try to cover all of our bases. Um, sometimes the system fails and, you know, people discover very quickly after adoption that I, I had no idea it was going to be like this. Uh, and then they surrender back. Thankfully, we have a really low um, return rate, but it does happen. And it's usually behavior or skin um, yeah. for why they might be returned back. Um, we will send animals home with, you know, as many weeks of meds as possible, um, especially in the current environment where someone might not be able to get an appointment with a vet or a dermatologist for weeks. Yeah. We'll send them with enough meds to keep them, you know, comfortable, keep their, if they have infection, we try to clear them of at least infection and parasites before they go home. Um, but again, doesn't always work out that way. So we send them with enough meds. We have actually on a few cases where like, you're going to need to establish care with a dermatologist. Um, and so we kind of like lay that out for them and give them options. Um, yeah, it's, we do as much as we can, but skin and behavior are uh, the two you know, hardest. Yeah. They're you tough know, for us. You're not going to, you, a lot of them, you're not going to cure, right? It's management. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like, and it is, it's tough even for us and not in a situation like that. I mean, you know, we have people who don't follow up with rechecks and, you know, they flare, they get frustrated or it's not what they signed up for. And so I can only imagine having to balance all of that, you know, even, even in tertiary care where people seek us after a primary veterinarian, we have those struggles 
then you guys are in your, you know, limited capabilities as, as awesome as you guys are, there's, is there some limitations and people don't, they get really excited. And I know this cause yep. I've gone through it twice, like really excited to get a pet and everything sounds hunky dory until all of a sudden the problems start right. or you're having to do it and live it. And sometimes that can be difficult. Did you feel like with the pandemic, like, cause, cause I know when I was and this is almost two years ago, so it may have changed, but we, I had to like apply for a dog online you know, then they emailed me about it and they sent pictures and videos, but then they called me and we talked through it. And then we made an isolated appointment just to see her. We could bring everyone with the family. And then I, you know, I'm a sucker. So we went home with her <laughs> like very quickly. Um, so was there struggles in the pandemic as far as communication and some of the limitations? Cause I know we couldn't just like walk in and go look at all the dogs there. Like we had to be really intentional. So did you guys find that difficult? Yes. Um, we learned some good things from the pandemic. I mean, the, the, because we had to doing the by appointment only and not open to the public, like we actually had a really high adoption rate. Once you got to the point where you came in to meet the pet, I mean, I know that that seems like, oh, well, duh, as soon as you meet the pet, you're going to take it home. But there were a lot of people who would just come in like on the weekend and stroll around and meet like five different dogs and be like, meh, no, I'm not ready. And then, you know, leave. Mm. Um, and that, you know, that's a lot of time that would be spent, you know, showing them different dogs and stuff like that. Um, so they weren't all suckers like me. Correct. Just came in one time and went home correct. with a dog. <laughs> correct. Um, but now, like, so we have actually a really high adoption rate once they come in to meet the pet. And we're at, we've, what we've learned is like people need a range of resources, right? We had people who were like, I just pick out a black kitten and they didn't want to come in. And so we would do everything over the phone and virtually, and then literally walk a kitten in the carrier that they had never touched or seen and walk it out to their car. Wow. That's how some people wanted to do it to like the full on, you know, like personal shopping kind of type one-on-one -on -one attention to adopting a pet. Um, and so we're open back to the public now. So people can kind of come in and, and roll through. We have a certain number of appointments that are just kind of open the day of, um, we, you know, do a lot of online. We're doing a lot of like email blasting. So people who have filled out an application and kind of given us an idea of what they're looking for, um, they get email blasts whenever we get, you know, like a transfer of a bunch of like little dogs or a bunch of, you know, kittens or something like that. Um, so it's, it's kind of a range of how we're doing it now, which is, is interesting, right? Like we had, we had one process before the pandemic and we were very successful at it. And now we're kind of like, well, actually there's a couple of other ways that are really popular and work really well. Um, yeah. I think that's just like all of us, right? Like when I think about practicing in 2019, if a client told me they wanted to bring their dog to see me, but stay in the car because their child had to do online learning. Or, I mean, they wanted to go shopping while I looked at the pet. I would mm -hmm. say there's no way. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, we have been people back in the clinic for a while. And I still have some people that want to do curbside either from just being cautious or truly that's what they got used to. Yep. And they're like, nope. Like, I know that you're going to have my dog for 30 minutes and we're like where we are is very close to a lot of shopping and we're really close to a TJ Maxx. And I've literally had people be like, well, this is when I shop at TJ Maxx. So you just call me and you know, I'll just, yeah, I'm going to do whatever you yep. say. And yep. I would have never thought I would have practiced like that, but it's like, I think we've all had to learn to be flexible and 
you know, just say, okay, like as long as I can medically do what I need to do and you're available and I need to talk to you, like if that's, pick up your phone, as long as you, yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. That is the, that's the limitation. But I've literally had people be like, well, this, I was going to go grab lunch and come back. So can you just, you know, call me later? You have so, to put a, put a cell tower up in TJ Maxx. So you know oh, that they get, so, seriously. um, we're, so we're building a new hospital. I think I, I can't, I think I told you this, we're building a community public facing hospital yeah. next, next door. And that's one of the things like that's kind of going into how we plan this is like exactly what you're talking about. Like, do we have uh, X number of parking spots that are reserved for, you know, curbside? Um, we're going to have a certain number of like drop off appointments available per day. Like they're, they're not going to be limitless or endless. Right. So just really kind of being flexible for what the clients want, because they all want they all prefer a different way. Some yep. are perfectly fine dropping off and getting other stuff done. And, you know, the, the kid example is a perfect example. Like it's way easier to manage a kid maybe in a car than having to like get them out of the car, you know, get them into the clinic, entertain them while they're waiting for you. And, you know, like mm -hmm. it's all stuff that we have to learn from the pandemic and, and kind of put into the new operating plan. Yeah, for sure. It's a different way of thinking for better or for worse, maybe yeah. for better in some aspects, honestly, like just kind of being flexible with people so we can provide better care if they have difficult situations. Well, this has just been so much fun. I knew it would be. I love getting, <laughs> I knew I was like, this will be so much fun. Um, now I do want to give you one last chance as far as any thoughts you want to leave with the veterinary community, just whether it's about shelter medicine, adoptions, like, is there anything that you really want to kind of just let general, you know, we have general practitioners, technicians, assistants, veterinary students that listen to the podcast. So what are some thoughts that you would like to leave them since you have had this really important role now for a couple of years? Yeah, I would, um, I guess I would encourage um, everyone to just like, go check out your local shelter, build a, a rapport with them, consider them a partner in, you know, in the care we provide in the community that we work in. Um, I think you'd be really surprised to learn how you can work together uh, on a number of different things. Um, you know, I, with, with our profession in, you know, the state that it's in, um, I, you know, I'm trying to, trying to position this more optimistically. Um, I think the most important thing is that we take care of each other. And yes. that's like, you know, animal welfare in general, right? And I put shelter people, private practice, specialists, like all of us are, you know, like we kind of have all the same like underlying mission, if you will, which is like helping people and their pets. And it's paramount that we support each other and take care of each other, right? Because that's, we have to care for ourselves and we have to care for our, our, our colleagues. Um, and so, yeah, I would just encourage people to like get to know your shelter people. Yeah. Yeah, it is important. You know, there's a lot of relationships that go on in veterinary medicine between each other, like us as veterinarians, yep. between our, the people who love our profession, like our staff and our technicians and our assistants and our volunteers, like you kind of mentioned, and yep. there's the pet owners. And really at the end of the day, it's all one big team and we all just have different roles within that, but it's so, so important. Well, I just want to thank you for giving up your time to be on the Durham Vet Podcast. It's been a wonderful conversation and hopefully this has thank given you. some, yeah, given some of our listeners a little in-depth look into shelter medicine and how amazing it can be. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Really, I was very excited and look forward to this. Awesome.
Well, thank you, Dr. Kachas, for being on the podcast today. You could just see all the amazing things that happen with shelter medicine. And, you know, as I mentioned in the podcast episode, my own dog came from there. And both of the dogs I've had throughout my veterinary career have been adopted from Humane Society. So they have a very special place in my heart. So I really hope you get to know the different shelters and rescues in your area because they do such amazing work for all of our pets and pet parents. I hope you enjoy this episode of the podcasting a different perspective of dermatologic management because it's so important that we're all one team for these animals.